The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Burning Man Project. Common side effects include moderate to severe confusion, partial enlightenment, utopianism, surrealism, situationism, and wild-eyed enthusiasm. If you have frequent thoughts of a transformative nature, you should continue listening immediately. Ask your life coach if you are spiritually healthy enough for this podcast. Welcome to the Burning Man Philosophical Center. I'm Caveat. Just because we've grown up with the internet doesn't mean the internet has grown up. This is the warning of MIT professor Sherry Turkle, who has been studying the way technology impacts psychology since the internet was a fringe phenomenon. What she's discovered is that the more friction-free technology makes our lives, the more we become spectators to our lives. That might be good for business, that might be great for business, but it makes us miserable. The solution isn't to disavow technology, but to practice being human, to practice talking to people and showing vulnerability. Dr. Sherry Turkle is our guest in the Burning Man Philosophical Center, and we talk about the ways in which embracing our imperfections is what will keep technology from conquering humanity. You've been studying how people use the internet as a social medium and how it impacts them since the internet really first appeared as a popular phenomenon. And it seemed like your sense of the impact it's had on us has changed significantly as the technology has evolved. It's not just as how the technology has evolved. It's that as I've observed how people have used it, um, I think in the beginning uh, there was a kind of utopian dream that didn't just have to do with the technology, but really had to do with some best guesses that were not, that were informed guesses, but were, were mm-hmm. not, you know, guesses, guesses and pundits and sociologists are, are you know, are often wrong about the kind of uh, democratizing and leveling and um, effects that um, access would have. But I'm an empiricist, you know. Um, I'm really basically an empiricist. I study how things develop and how they unfold. And some of my early optimism about uh, the effects that the Internet would have on uh, people and on development, I've had to sort of step back and say, whoa, um, there have been unintended side effects that, you know, I didn't anticipate. Um, And I've tracked those uh, very carefully and my enthusiasm, I still am enthusiastic about what technology can mean for us and how we can um, make it work for us. But it's not going to work for us unless we take a very active role in in shaping it, left to to its own devices and left to our own devices. It's going to work um, in our favor. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wonder if it's if it's not just side effects. Has has the dream itself actually changed? No, I think it is. Uh, well, I think that what happened was is that the um, the corporatization of the internet, mm-hmm. um, the fact that very clever people who, in, I think, in the beginning had very lofty intentions, realized as they did not realize, you know, a t equals zero that there was a lot of money to be made um, uh, by scraping the data about the people who were using um, their product. Um, You know, when Mark Zuckerberg invented Facebook, 
he was trying to get people together, uh, the first thing on his mind was not how he was going to use information he gleaned about those people uh, mm-hmm. to sell to third parties. I mean, that really was not, right. you know, he had a different, you know, he had a different vision. And, you know, you want to give him credit for having a different vision that was much more about connection and social life and, 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 and uh you know, a world of connection and connectivity. But but I think what's happened, I mean, and I think this is where um, there's a unique opportunity now, uh, because I think we're at a point of inflection, where it took quite a bit of time for that movement to mature, for a lot of money to be made, and for the public to sort of catch on about how they were the product mm-hmm. that was being bought and sold. Um, because in my interviewing of people about their use of the Internet, in the beginning when you would talk to people about how they were the product and, you know, what about the fact that they were being used as data to be sold, people would kind of shrug and say, oh, well, I kind of don't mind that I see shoe ads that sort of please me, I kind of want to buy those shoes anyway, what's the harm? Right. And I think now, uh, I think people really understand uh, on some gut level, if not on a deeply technical level, how much the Internet knows about them um, and how much they can be manipulated. And I think we're at a point of inflection where people really are ready to take a second look at Google, at Amazon, at uh, Facebook, at at what Apple can do, and um, at our devices and how they uh, compel us and how much of that is really necessary and how much of that is not necessary and what the good life really is. How we can, nobody wants to give up our technology, but we can make it better for us. We can make it better for us. And I think that's really... I think we're starting to be at that point now, and I think it's a thrilling moment. I don't think we were there five years ago. When you talk about us becoming products, I mean, that, that sounds very much to me like a process of dehumanization. People are not products unless they are dehumanized. What, what, what kind of impact does that have, or is that, is that even the most significant impact that we're, we're seeing from the way we rely on the digital world now? Well, I think that for Facebook, you are an object that has been commoditized. You are mm-hmm. you, your your eyeballs, your attention, is uh, is grist for their mill. I mean it in a very simple sense. You know, your attention is the is the object of of something that's on a kind of assembly line that leads to their making money. Mm-hmm. I meant it in the most simplest, uh, direct. Sense now that does dehumanize you. Uh, they can, they can smooth talk. <laughs> they can, you know, they can smooth talk and emoji, and emoji you all they want. Um, but but the essential business model uh, is uh, that the more you talk about yourself and reveal about yourself, the more they can sell that information to other people to target you in advertising. I think that what I was trying to say is that you know this has been going on for a while now, and I interview people about how much they understand or know or care about this process from the point of view of privacy, from the point of view of individual uh, 
I was going to say free will, but that's not exactly the word I'm looking for. I'm struggling, you know, individual identity, individual uh, agency. Mm-hmm. And I found that people uh, kind of have been shying away from, from accepting the the full responsibility for where they are. You know, people will say mm-hmm. things like, oh, who cares about me and my little life? You know, people take a very unempowered uh, uh, position about who they are and who would care. Well, now, uh, I think we're at a point which, of course, is very sad because, you know, Mm -hmm. a generation that's grown up saying, who would care about me and my little life, uh, is not a generation that's going to step up politically um, and do the necessary to take back uh, uh, political power and, uh, and, and, you know, in a way that's... Mm -hmm necessary. But I think that what I'm saying is a point of inflection. I see a real difference in the past, certainly in the past two years, where people are saying, I get it. I, know, I get, I, I somehow viscerally, mm-hmm. you know, I, I see. And I think you see uh, each company uh, trying to do the right thing, uh, they don't know how much of the right thing they have. <laughs> they don't know how much of the right thing. I, I think what's very interesting in the kinds of dialogues that are opening up um, is I think each of them doesn't know how much of the right thing they have to do. But I think now I think there's the opening for a genuine dialogue, mm-hmm. a genuine dialogue among essentially consumer advocacy groups who are speaking for children, you know, who are speaking for, but not just children, for all of our identities. And then I think that the companies who are really, you know, we live our lives online and the companies that are the, uh, the places where we're living, the real estate where we're moving, the, the, the places that hold this information have to, have to be in much more of a dialogue and negotiation with, with its citizenry. We are right. the digital citizens. And right. I think that's starting to happen, and I think it's a very, very exciting time. Um, I think it will happen. It's, it's interesting to me that you were saying a moment ago that you were, you were struggling with the words to explain what it is that people are feeling they have lost. And that this, this is my experience, too, that people have a clear sense that something is, is coming under assault, that something is missing. But it's, it's privacy, but it's not just privacy. It's, it's engagement, but it's not just engagement. It seems like people have a, a clear sense that something is under attack or is in danger of being lost without really being able to explain what it is exactly. Yeah, well, because I, th- I think it's because so many things. <laughs> I think it's because uh, the, the digital life has changed. You know, I call it uh, an intimate technology because it, it, it an intimate machine because it's 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 changing so many things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just interviewing a woman who who finds herself and very interested in our new practice of talking to machines. You know. Uh, that we now have a new kind of AI, artificial intimacy. You have these machines mm-hmm. that are capable of chatting with us about things that they really know nothing about. You know, they'll chat with you about your boyfriend, about your experiences on Tinder. They'll, ex- they'll chat with you about, you know, Match.com. They'll chat with you. People, people will talk to Alexa about, you know, you know or there is, there are, there are, there are therapy bots that will mm-hmm. just talk to you about whatever. And I've been talking to people, very interested in this, about people having conversations with machines that really are programmed to have 
you know, pretend empathy with you, pretend in the sense that they're, it's not that they can't fake it. They kind of pass the, quote, Turing test for empathy. You know, you can't tell that they don't have empathy because they're mm-hmm. programmed to do this. But, 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 but they are talking out of their area of any competency since they don't have, they've never had a boyfriend, they don't have a life, they don't feel pain, they don't have mm-hmm. a child. I mean, they, they're just, they're just kind of able to talk. And um, so people find themselves in these situations where they're talking to machines, where they're spending more time alone, just surfing the internet, talking to their Facebook friends, not going out for a drink. It seems like too much work. Um, you know, this kind of alone together phenomena that I've studied, mm-hmm. you know, so intensely where, you know, people want to be connected, feel more and more lonely, but feel more vulnerable. They want to be perfect. They want to show a kind of curated self to the outside world, and they can only show this perfect self if they sort of hide. So uh, they can craft a more, you know, (laughs) a more perfect self if they hide from each other and uh, you know, or witty and delightful in a text or in a G-chat. Or a, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of hiding vulnerability that you can do online, which makes the interactions safer. Right. But also, when you reveal less, you are talking to a machine. I mean, that's the limit of being, mm-hmm. you know, less vulnerable. So you reveal less, but you also learn less about another person and you learn less about yourself and in the end you're not practicing the, well, I would call it the empathic skills. You know, mm-hmm. you're not learning how to be empathetic. You're not learning how to listen. You're not learning how to express yourself so you can be understood and it's so ironic because there's this new study that Google did where they, they, were, they were looking to find that STEM education is, is great for doing well at Google. So mm-hmm. they surveyed all the year, their employees over all the years of Google, you know, looking to show that, that a STEM education, you know, really drove you to the top. And they found out just the opposite. They found out that the people who had done well in their careers at Google were people who had, were good coaches, who knew how to listen, were empathic, were mm-hmm. good at working on teams. I mean, they found out that basically people who could listen and who wanted to listen to other people and who were good at revealing themselves and who, I mean, they, they just basically found out that conversation and being right. willing to participate in conversation and be vulnerable in conversation, this is what led you, you know, not, not all this STEM stuff, but, you know, they had, hired, they had hired people who were good at STEM and then the people who had succeeded at Google were succeeded for these other sets of skills. Right. And if, if, if what you, if you're trying to hide behind your, um, screen, you're never going to get to that. You're mm-hmm. just never going to get to that. Yeah, you've, you've talked about the way in which machines now seem to care more about people than people do. And yeah. I, I wonder if that's not both because machines are getting so much better at appearing to care, that the program is, is getting so much cl- more clever, but that people are also getting worse at it. Yes. I mean, I think people are putting themselves in situ. Well, first of all, bottom line is the, the program doesn't care at all. I mean, I think that that's what people need to be reminded of is that um, I, I sort of consider this my private uh, 
Sherry Turkle mission is that you know you really just need to remind yourself that no matter what this program is saying or it's it's smooth talk, uh, this program doesn't care at all. Mm-hmm. It is not. It, it just does, there's nobody home to care, and you can write a an extremely brilliant uh, program that just just as good as Scarlett Johansson and her. I mean, people keep talking to me about that movie. Yes, it is. It is just as good. <laughs> it's just brilliant programming. <laughs> but but it doesn't. There's nobody. This program doesn't care about you. You know, if you've never felt pain, and you tell this program, you know, I, I broke my arm, and it's just excruciating. And no matter how this, pro- how much this program says, oh my God, you know, it's terrible. I felt it too. It's horrible. You know, just stoke up on those pain meds and go to bed with tea. I mean, there's nobody telling you that who has felt pain or knows pain, or that's just not a thing there. Mm-hmm. Now you could say that there's a an army of programmers who who you could envisage who told the machine about that. I mean, but but that's not true. I mean, that, that that's a sort of these these responses at this point have been amalgamated from you know from from conversations that people have had, and this machine is kind of you know uh, grown up listening to. It's it's it, this, this is not a there's not a person there who cares about you. That's mm-hmm. your imagination. So, first of all, just the bottom line is that the machine doesn't care about you, but you're not putting yourself, the more you spend time uh, talking to machines, the, the less time you're spending cultivating the skills um, that would put you in front of a person mm-hmm. who, who in, perhaps in a more stumbling way would say, oh, my God, you know, uh, I'm busy tonight because I have to finish a problem set. But, um, you know, really late, I think by 10 o'clock, I could come over and just sit and make you a cup of tea. You know, how about Mm -hmm. that? I can't come. You know, so it's an imperfect response. The machine is there right away. But the imperfect person, after they finish their problem sets, will come over and you'll have an imperfect person uh, who actually maybe once broke her arm. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to start to, there, there's so much in my work of people being annoyed at the imperfection of people's responses. They're, they're, they're boring. They're, they're not fast enough. They, people saying that, that human conversation has too much downtime, you know, too much silence, and it has boring bits Mm-hmm. You know that they, 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 when when people are silent or get into boring bits, people want to escape into machines and talking to machines or going on the net. We have to get used to those boring bits again. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has been a lovely conversation, but I'm sure that there have been moments that have had little boring bits, and you know, <laughs> and that's part of you know, and the fact that you've soldiered on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shows that you are into human conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're you're willing to to just tough it out when I get to a little boring bit, and that's because you're interested in talking to a person. And I think that you know that's that's really the that's really what we have to start to talk to our kids about because mm-hmm. they pick up their phone when there's a lull. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I hear. 
in the interviews. They, you, you pick up your phone when there's a lull. What is this when there's a lull? When you're talking mm-hmm. to a person, of course there's a lull. Right. You know, they're thinking. They're thinking. It, it's interesting because you, you, you've pointed out that on the one hand, we're using the digital technology to create more and more perfect identities. And that on the other side of that, then, is that we're becoming less and less capable of dealing with human imperfections. And, and something is getting lost there. Yes, well, it's the notion of what is a perfect identity, I think, that's at stake. Mm. You know, a perfect identity is a curated identity. An identity that has no, um, you know, it's all, it's all fireworks. Mm-hmm. It goes so from one ski slope to another, from one black diamond ski slope to another. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from one, from one Michelin restaurant to another. It's just when you look at people's Instagram feeds, I mean, like, God, do these people just ever have scrambled eggs? I mean, it's just, you know, like... <laughs> And it, what, what's interesting, what's interesting is that when I, when I, you know, talk to my, when I try to talk to students or, you know, people who I think are at an, at an age of being convinced, somewhat malleable <laughs> on these issues, I, you know, I say, you know, look, I say, look, I, you know, I have a life that's kind of complicated, you know, sometimes like I'm in like a fancy place and giving a fancy speech and there's like a, a dinner in my honor and like the food is like has moose on it or all the food is moose or something. And, and I can take a picture of that. And if I just post that, it looks like I have like a really fancy life. Yeah. Uh, but actually, most of the time, I'm like in my sweatpants in front of an empty screen. Um <laughs> Yeah. You know, like uh, with a glass of orange juice, like trying to figure out what words come next. And, uh, you know, that's mostly. And if you just, if I just posted, me, you know, what I look like in these sweatpants and the empty screen and this sad glass of orange juice, I mean, you know, I would look like the most depressed <laughs> creature <laughs> in the world. So the, the real people. You know, real people just don't go from one, you know, meal, you know, fancy meal to another. And now that all we do is post these artfully, artfully contrived meals where we're the guest of honor to another, mm-hmm. it's a, it's, it's, it's a curated life, not an authentic one. Right. And I think it's not doing. You know, sometimes I look at, you know, pictures of, you know, like my Facebook things or things that I've posted and I say, God, I wish I were her. Because what I'm doing is sitting, (laughs) I'm I'm like sitting trying to figure out like what the next word should be in a sentence. And I've been doing Mm -hmm. that for, I've been doing that for three hours and I keep, you know, looking on YouTube to try to distract myself to see if, you know. I can find inspiration for what the next right. word is, and it's a very despairing, you know, day. <laughs> but there's yeah. this lady on, there's this lady on Twitter who seems just go from one party to another. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think we're, like I say, we strive for we preach authenticity, and in fact, we're we're curating. Uh, 
a kind of self, uh, we live a, online, we live a life of self-curation. And mm-hmm. that's not good because you get this. And here was another unanticipated side effect, this whole, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, fear of missing anything, uh, which creates a tremendous amount of anxiety, particularly among adolescents. I mean, yeah. I can laugh about it, talk about it, and, you know, I laugh about it. But, you know, even laughing about it, it can make me... I become jealous of myself, but among adolescents, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah, you, your your most recent book, I believe, is about reclaiming conversation in a digital age. How how would yes. you do that? What uh, what? I cannot overestimate the importance, the difference, when people talk. Because, I mean, I think of my students. My students I'll give you an example. My students would rather not come to office hours, but send me a, a, an email, a perfect email, often a very long email, mm. where they perfectly describe their project and their question. Because they've had a chance to kind of sculpt it and make it perfect. They're not vulnerable. They're not going to be caught short. They're not, you know, they're, it's hiding behind the screen. And their fantasy is I'm going to send them a perfect email back in which I will address their concerns. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody, who, anybody who's ever been, has a love of learning or who's been lit up by learning knows that it wasn't because they sent a perfect email right. and got a perfect email back. On the contrary, you came in with something that was very imperfect and a teacher or a coach or a mentor said, Ugh, this is bad, but let me, let me help you. Let me, let's work let's on work this. To, exactly. To, let's, yeah. let's, get to, let's get together again. I like to say together again, again, together, together again, that these are the magic words for mentorship. It's the together again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, 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 you get that in conversation where you, you show your vulnerability, somebody says, that's okay, you're a human being. But when you bond together with other people, you, you get help, you get support, and you make it better. And that's what we're going to do. Right. And, you, and you, when, you, when you say, I want to I look perfect, I want to send as good this email, and I want her to be perfect and make it, you turn a relationship into a transaction. And that is the story I tell in Reclaiming Conversation of how in education and in personal life and in business, but a lot in business, people try to turn relationships into transactions mm-hmm. and how it really doesn't work. You lose creativity, you lose productivity, you lose, um, you, you lose the juice of what makes, you know, of what makes things work. And it just is time to get that back. It's right. just time to get that back. Right. It, the what, what I'm hearing is, is almost a, a set of steps for for practicing being human because it's a use it or lose it proposition, and and those include first deciding that yes, our small selves in fact matter, 
uh, practicing conversation, embracing imperfections, cultivating non-transactional relationships. Is, is there anything else that should, should be on that list that stands out to you as this is something we should be doing to, to practice? Yeah, don't talk to the non-human as though it were human. Talking to machines to practice talking, to practice emotional empathic talking is not practice. Mm-hmm. I like to say, you know, there's no such thing as the empathy app. People talking to each other. We are the empathy app. You don't practice empathy by chatting with Siri. That's not like yeah. a path forward. So there's all this talk now about how, you know, you'll practice, you know, <laughs> you know you'll, kind of, you'll practice your skills on Siri and then you'll like try it out on, a, you know, you'll practice being more empathic by chatting with a machine. No. Mm-hmm. Just just take your first person, <laughs> you know, take your first person and say, how was your day? Right. And see how it goes. And, and there's and something valuable in the discomfort. Yeah, I won't be good. You know, it's hard to talk to a person. It's not so easy to talk to a person. I mean, you know, when I looked over my interviews for the past year, I, I see that they do have a different tone. People are people are feeling they're ready. Parents are are sounding more ready, and there are more articles about uh, I'm ready to have a different relationship with my phone. Should I turn it to gray? Should I, you know, every, every trick that comes along. People are no longer saying, well, this is ridiculous. They're saying, look, I'll try this. I'll try this. And there's a little bit less, I think, um, fantasy that, oh, oh, we'll just all detox. Mm-hmm. Because I think that really was a fantasy, that we're going to mm-hmm. give up our phones, not have our phones, throw our phones away. That's not going to happen. Right. We, have to be, we have to be very activist in, 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 in redesigning the phones and how we use them. This isn't about tossing it all. So anyway, I, I'm, what, I, what I'm saying is that this conversation, although it's pleasurable, it's not a piece of cake Mm-hmm. You know, conversations are challenging. Right. But the opposite of easy, the opposite of easy is not just hard. The opposite of easy is challenging, demanding, interesting, uh, evocative. We have to get away from the idea that just because something is not easy, it's bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's my main takeaway for the sort of the year to come is to, you know, we, we talked about how everything should be friction-free, and that's what technology was going to give us, this friction-free world. And in fact, the, uh, that was a very bad image. You know, um, friction-free implies that the good life is like you just don't, it's kind of like mm-hmm. those people in Wally who were just kind of, skating around yeah. all fat on their little surfer boards. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's friction-free. No, you know, technology is not, it shouldn't make things friction-free. The opposite of easy is, is uh, it shouldn't be easy. Technology should make things better, but it can be challenging. It can be demanding. It can be complicated, but it can be better. 
Right. But it, but not in a way that leaves us the kind of passive uh, the passive uh, spectators in our lives. Well, it's, it's funny you should mention that because, of course, we're we're having this conversation uh, for the Burning Man's theme series this year, and one of Burning Man's key uh, values is that there are no spectators; that everyone everyone is as a participant. Oh, I so, so yeah. I so applaud that. I mean, that's the point. But the way you get there is that you know the op. To me, the way you get there is that we wanted. This, that we had this fantasy of friction-free, and it brought you to becoming like a spectator in your life. Mm-hmm. You just technology was going to just take over this stuff. Yeah. And what, you know, one of my favorite images for this is—I don't know if you're—if you were part of this—is that one of the early demos for the friction-free life and the Internet of Things was a demo that I, I must have seen ten years ago. Of you would. You would order your cappuccino, and there would be an app that would send the order by the Internet of Things to the, to the Starbucks or whatever, and then it would plot a route for you to get to the Starbucks where you wouldn't have to pass an ex-lover or an ex-wife or an ex-husband or anybody who you'd ever had a fight with. In other words, it would, it would allow you a friction-free path to... <laughs> You know, it was like it was like a it was like a Hogwarts. You know, it was like a wow. it was right out of Harry Potter. So the the idea was, and I think there's even an app someplace out there that is, is kind of like a little bit like this. You know, that you put down all the people who you don't want to pass on the street, and it play, you know, but you so you tag everybody, but with you in your in your friend list, and you can avoid you can have a route that avoids who you don't want to see. But the the point being that. The friction-free life, the friction-free route to your cappuccino was the right one. And to me, it's always represented the idea that, that well, what's wrong with a life in which you pass someone right. who you've had any conflict with or who, right. you've, who you've had a disagreement with? Or is that the good life in which we never pass anyone who, who's part of our history that, that is not just... You know that, that that we've that we've had any problems with. Where did this idea come from? That that's the that that's the good life. No, I can I can I can tell you that uh, among the conversations that are that are had about Burning Man is how do we make it more convenient? Is not only almost something something that almost never comes up, but far more often the question of has it become too convenient? Should we make it less convenient? It's already yeah. very challenging, but that's actually a conversation that that fairly routinely happens. Is you know, should we should we make it more inconvenient for people? How can should, is that is that important enough to be doing right now? Well, that's very interesting. Or how do you get people to to bump into each other who don't know each other or who might disagree with each other? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a conversation that I'm having all the time. You know, how can I bump into people who I don't agree with? Right. I mean, I'm. I live a life in which I bump all that. I just went to a thing last night where I didn't. I agreed with everybody in the room, and I just thought to myself, I gotta, I gotta mix it up more. I, I, you know, I, 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 I gotta. <laughs> I have to. I have to change my social program. This can't go on. I have to. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to fix. I have to mix it up more. So, I mean, I think these are things we need to think about. That the opposite of, the opposite of easy. Can, 
can't just be hard. It has to be demanding. And that's what's wrong with the Internet, is that people get themselves into these silos of, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in my safe space um, of, of not being challenged by ideas that are going to upset me. Mm-hmm. And there's no place easier to do that than online. Right. And that is something that I didn't anticipate. See, that's a good example of, of I, when I began writing about online life, I was all filled with ideas about how I would be reading more and more and more things that I'd never come into contact with. So it would be so easy for me to be reading things that I never came into contact with before. And now when I interview students, they tell me how they don't want to go to controversial sites because they're afraid it's going to be on their sort of permanent record. And a graduate school will see it somehow and will find out that they've been looking at controversial sites and will not want them. Mm-hmm. So that's wow. a terrible chilling effect. Yeah. Yeah. So who has access? I mean, if Google knows every place I've been, who else can have access to that? Who can buy access to that? Mm-hmm. People want to know this, and there's no one to ask. That's a yes. terrible thing. If you if you want to go if you want to go to law school, but you really want to start reading up on ISIS, you're very nervous. Hmm. Maybe you don't have reason to be nervous, but you're very nervous. Right, right. And in a democracy, that that should not be the case. But of course, it is. Yeah, right. That gets added to our list of how we practice being of the ways things we of how we practice being human. Uh, yes. Well, we have to start. We have to start looking at the real consequences. I mean, I'm you know calling them unintended. I think is not. It's probably not the most powerful way to think about it. But you know the real the real consequences, human, political, emotional, uh, of, of what we've created, and I and I think we have to stop. Um, you know, one of the – I gave a TED Talk, and one of my favorite lines in it is, we, we grew up with the Internet. Just because we grew up with the Internet, we think the Internet is all grown up. And that's mm. a terrible distortion mm. because, because it's one of the worst things that's happened is that, yes, we grew up with the Internet. There are going to be a lot of people in your burning man who grew up with the Internet. Mm-hmm. But that distorts their view of the Internet because it makes them feel that what the Internet is today, it's like that's what it is. No, it's in, it's in the baby stages. So, so Google and Facebook and, and Apple, and, and, and these, are, these are companies that are, that are in their baby stages. Just because they are so wealthy doesn't mean that they're not in their baby stages. Right. So I think we see a company that, that has this, you know, and even Amazon, baby, baby stages. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so just because we see a company that, 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 that is so spectacularly wealthy and successful and everything, we, we get confused because we saw it come from its infancy. And we we have a, um, a time distortion because we think, well, this must be at its maturity because we saw it as an infant. Not at all. Right. It, this company is just starting, just as the Internet is just starting to find itself. This company is just starting to find itself. And so, for example, it is not written 
that people are going to want their homes to be invaded and monitored, even though that is the current business plan of major Internet companies. Mm-hmm. So right now it's the current business plan that you're going to have Nest and, I mean, I will, you know, Alexa, turn on my heat and turn on, you know, and right. listen, to, listen to all my conversations and, you know, take them down and so you'll know me better. So, I, Well, it's not maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, you know, that in the wrong hands. I mean, you know, you all of that uh, in the wrong hands or with a government that thinks it can subpoena all that or own all that or take that or take it in its control is very frightening. All the conversations you have in your house that mm-hmm. it's picking up. Uh, um, so maybe just because it's the current, business plan, um, people will really say, you know, um, we don't want that. Right. Just the way people said, Amazon wanted this thing where it came into your house, you gave it a key, and, and it, you know, it took 15 minutes for people to say, you know, that's not, take away that. We don't want that. Right. You know? No. Yeah. No, I, I, find, I find the idea that the internet is still in its infancy in that sense to, to be to be to be hopeful very hopeful yeah. and i but i think it's important that we we keep telling ourselves this story because everything about how it's marketed to us you know the slickness of how it's marketed to us is one thing but also the fact that it's marketed to us as though there's an arc a necessary arc that brings us to this place mhm so every new product is presented as though there's a narrative, a narrative that necessarily brings us to the place we're at now. And um, no, yeah. no, there's another narrative that says this is like the worst place to be. Having, having, having objects in your house that are listening to all your conversations, Having, having face recognition technology on all of your devices to unlock your devices that can be hacked? No. Rating each other? Having social rating systems? Oh, that's, God. That's, really that's no. The transactional relationship. Maybe. Exactly. Really yeah. no. Okay, so we're at these places now. This is where we are. And we know, we know, we now, now we have science fiction that makes these things. We have like, we, we have movies that show us how bad all these things are. And we have, but we have, we have, you know, you turn on ads for them that makes it sound like, but they, that make it all sound both inevitable and desirable. Mm-hmm. The question is, okay, so you have dystopian science fiction that makes it sound like very bad. And you have advertising campaigns that make it sound like the best thing ever. So... What's going to happen? What are you know? What, what's next? Are people going to say, "Oh, you know, well, let's just see how it plays out"? But I don't think I don't think it's inevitable. And let's see. Yeah. And it's not going to happen overnight. People may experiment with it and say, "This creeps me out," or people may say, uh, I, "I love the I love the I love the convenience," or people may say, "You know, I, this convenience is not worth it. I, I I'd like more autonomy. I don't need to." I don't need to say that I needed a stick of butter across a crowded room. Right. And in the meantime, we can practice being human. In the meantime, we can practice being human. Exactly. 
Jerry Turkle, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, it has been a lot of fun. Really my pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Sherry Turkle, Professor of Social Science and Technology at MIT. This is a Burning Man Philosophical Center podcast. The Philosophical Center is a Larry Harvey joint with casting by Stuart Mangrum. It was produced by Jay Knizzel. I'm Caveat, and comments and feedback can be sent to caveat at burningman.org, at least until I'm replaced by a chatbot that tries to upsell you to the Philosophical Center 2.0. Until then, remember, belief is thought at rest. <laughs>